Dr. Kaz J. Nelson is a distinguished fellow of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and serves as vice chair for education in the University of Minnesota Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at their medical school. We discuss addressing patients in distress, and you know exactly who I'm talking about, the patient that says that nobody understands them, nobody listens to them, and goes from doctor to doctor feeling ignored and misunderstood. She has a very specific, very methodical strategy for getting them to unclench their fists, sit down, and have a conversation about their care. And it doesn't just apply to the exam room. So this works for patients in distress and those who have different treatment expectations and wishes. We also discussed the diving reflex and if it is ever appropriate to just splash someone with ice-cold water. Turns out, there are times that it is. Dr. Nelson is an honors graduate at the University of Minnesota Morris and received her medical degree in psychiatry residency training from the University of Minnesota Medical School. Dr. Nelson is the 2018 Minnesota Psychiatric Society Psychiatrist of the Year and a 2018 Exemplary Psychiatrist awarded for the state of Minnesota by the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Dr. Nelson developed an openly accessible podcast with her brother George called The Mind Deconstructed, which aims to serve the general community to demystify and decrease misunderstanding of common mental health conditions. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Contract Diagnostics is a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, most likely a few additional times as well. I love this company as they've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they are signing, but what risks they are taking with their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours, they make it easy for you. All packages are flat priced, so you know what you'll be paying up front. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. That's 888-574-5526. Dr. Kaz Nelson, thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. So let's first, we're, we're going to be talking today about uh, communi- communication strategies for patients in distress or who may have different treatment expectations from the physician. But when I heard you say patients in distress, one of the things I've heard you talk about in the past is the diving reflex. So I just, when I heard you talk about it, I just pictured this enraged patient that's that's upset because they've been waiting for so long. And you splash them with a bunch of cold water in order to initiate the diving reflex and get them out of their distress. Now, that's not a realistic strategy nor appropriate, um, but can you first talk about that? I just thought it was so interesting and, and how that could actually be used. Yes, Brad. This is such a revolutionary technique, although something psychologists have been aware of for a long time, but we've been slow in medicine to understand really the power of 
this reflex for, for people in distress. And let me tell you first, this is something I use for myself. This is something my family used. This is something my colleagues use. It's not just for patients, it's for everyone. And it's incredibly powerful. It's so powerful. It should be taught to kindergartners. I, I don't really know why it's not. If, if you could help us get the word out through this podcast, if those listening could get the word out, it would be awesome. So yes, we all know about the vagal nerve. Those of you working in acute care know about vagal maneuvers, but the, the vagal nerve is, is your friend because it when it's stimulated, it shuts down the sympathetic part of the nervous system, the fight or flight part of the nervous system. So for anyone who's experiencing panic, anxiety, all of that's mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. And you can hack the system. You can shut that down by stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system through the vagal nerve. And yes, there's different, I don't know, vagal maneuvers bearing down <laughs> different things. Uh, but the mammalian dive reflex is one of the most powerful and effective ways to stimulate the vagal nerve when people are experiencing intolerable emotions or intolerable feelings. And so it's just putting the face in ice water, icy water, not cold water, not one of those cold packs that you shake up and, and the little chemical releases and it gets cold. It's got to be icy, but you put the face in water or an ice cold you know, block of ice right underneath the eyes and it stimulates the vagal nerve and it works faster than a benzodiazepine, works faster than medicine. Somebody who's experiencing 10 out of 10 symptoms can bring it down to eight out of 10 within the matter of seconds through this reflex. Could you use one of those, you know, those ice masks that you keep in the freezer that we use for people with like migraines? You could, you just put this, this eye mask on? Absolutely. As long as it's icy cold. And some of those with the gel, they um, melt pretty quickly. Yeah. And so you may have to refresh it. But yes, absolutely. If it came out of the freezer, it would work. And, you know, what I explained to patients, because nobody's going to really um, believe that this works. What? I'm just going to put ice on my face and feel better. What's the deal with that? Well, I explained to them, and this is easy in Minnesota because we have icy lakes, the, the lakes freeze over, and <laughs> there's all sorts of lore and stories about the kids who skate on the ice and tragedy strikes, they fall through the ice, and it's it's horrible. They may be under there, you know, half an hour before they're pulled out. Everyone assumes, of course, they've perished because they've been there under the ice for so long. Lo and behold, with slow rewarming several hours later, they are alive. Why are they alive? Because the mammalian dive reflex, something all mammals have, mediated this effect of slowing down the heart rate, slowing down the breathing, preserving the body, going into preservation mode. Even in the case of an emergency, when you think the fight or flight system should be pumping, no, the, the resting nervous system kicks in to allow mammals to survive in terrible circumstances. And that's really what people are striving to do is survive the moment. And so that ice, ice water on the face does that. And when, when you're an eight out of 10 or a seven out of 10 in terms of your intensity, it's so much easier to have access to your other skills and the other things that you do. But when you're 10 out of 10, really, there's just really, uh, you know, no amount of coloring or calling a friend or taking a warm bath, <laughs> Lavender, you know, no amount of lavender is going to help when you're 10 out of 10. You've got to do something that's strong and effective and instantaneous 
to bring you down to a lower level where the yoga and the lavender yeah. can do its job. I would imagine this would be effective for our emergency department colleagues, for some of their patients. I would love if it was routine to grab the ice pack before grabbing the IV Ativan. Because when we teach people how to hack their system and trigger their mammalian dive reflex on their own, we empower them. We teach them to build those skills. They stay out of the ER. When we teach them that the only remedy for 10 out of 10 anxiety or panic is to have an IV in the arm with Ativan or even oral Ativan, we've reinforced their powerlessness, helplessness, and teach them next time this happens, come back. That's the, the opposite of what any of us want. Well, this, this was extremely interesting and useful, but that's, that's not where we were intending to take most of the discussion because most of the time when we encounter someone in distress, it's not going to be 10 out of 10, right? It's going to be that seven or eight out of 10. So what I envision is someone, like when I walk into a patient room, right? And I can already tell that their cortisol level is elevated, right? They're leaning forward. They're on the edge of their seat. They're like, they're almost ready to jump out. They're just inch itching for a confrontation. Fists are clenched. How do I start that visit? How do I engage with them in the most effective way? Well, for anyone in distress, suggestions or advice like, oh, ice on the pack and the mammalian or ice on the face and the mammalian dive reflex, they're not going to be welcome. Not only is it not going to be welcome, people are not going to be able to hear it. They're not going to be able to process or, or understand the words that you're saying. Because we know when people have their sympathetic nervous system triggered, their brain's on fire, it is actually very difficult for them to take in information and understand words. It sounds to them like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, wah, 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 wah. And so in medicine, what we love to do is walk in the room and tell people what they should do or what we think about the situation or try to provide them information to mitigate the way they're presenting. And lo and behold, that doesn't work. And in fact, can make things worse. It can really uh, lead to escalation. And you have people saying, you don't get it. You're not listening to me. How dare you? This is what we see sometimes. And you, you see those other clues you mentioned, the, the clenched fits, the, they, they might even be sweating. Or maybe they're not clenching their fist, but maybe they're crossing their arms and staring at the wall and silent and not talking to you, not engaging whatsoever. So this kind of, I don't know, distress, upsetness can look different ways and it can be different intensities. But what I want to share with you today and what we can understand is that there's a universal approach, universal technique to engaging with people, no matter how they're presenting, any form of distress, even low-level distress or anxiety related to concern about a medical condition they may be presenting with. And I want to just tell you a little bit about how this technique was developed, because I certainly don't want to take full credit for it. This was developed by a psychologist who works with patients with severe presentations of disorders related to suicidality and self-injury. So these are people in extreme distress, completely given up on living, and in fact, in, in injuring themselves actively, maybe through cutting, burning, 
these kinds of things. Uh, something that's upsetting for us to see, certainly, somebody who's given up on living and injuring themselves, that, that's upsetting for us too. Anyways, this behavioral psychologist, her name's Marsha Linehan, developed a technique for effectively communicating with people that have stopped being able to hear, basically, because they're so distressed and so upset. And uh, what I love about this story and, and the origin of this technique is we have learned subsequently that this researcher, Marsha Linehan, had severe mental illness early in her adulthood prior to college, prior to obtaining her PhD and becoming a behavioral psychologist. And so there's just something beautiful in this story that she developed this technique. And how did she do that? Well, because she had been in the exact shoes, the exact position of the people that she was treating. And she knew those magical things to say. She could go into their brains, read their mind and say exactly what needed to be said in order to reduce their distress. And some of it was not intuitive. Some of it, the other people in the lab were saying, oh, wow, you shouldn't say that. Oh, why are you saying that? You know, <laughs> and it was, of course, when the other people in the lab would talk with the participants, they would get more upset. <laughs> so the proof was in the outcome that the patients would de-escalate. They would feel safer. They would become more curious, more insightful, more thoughtful. They would start being able to listen when she spoke with them a certain way. And so now this communication technique is actually baked into certain therapies that were designed to treat this population. I had the privilege of being trained in this intensively, you know, people watching me while I would interact with the patient, coaching me in these techniques. It's an immense privilege for me as a psychiatrist with medical background to get this training in psychology. And so what I intend to do now is take this learning to the rest of medicine. I didn't create this. I didn't make it up. But it's my mission to explain this, package it in a way that doesn't require years and years of intensive coaching and training, but that we can get the basic concepts, start implementing them today the best we can, because the status quo is harmful for patients and it's burning us out when we don't know how to do this. So that was a long preamble. My apologies. But I think understanding the the background of where this come from, comes from helps to, uh, you know, give some credibility to the technique and explain why, explains why it works, even though it's not very intuitive. You mentioned it's burning us out. And I just want to point out that this toolbox that you're going to provide us with is going to hopefully help turn those patients that would have been burning us out into patients that are invigorating us right? Yes. Because you'll take this challenging situation and then it'll lead to fulfillment, both for you and the patient, because you'll be able to, you know, de-escalate it and you'll leave the room feeling like, wow, I really accomplished something with this person. So it'll, exactly. instead of them burning us out, they're going to be invigorating us. But now right. I'm, I'm at the edge of my seat. My <laughs> fists are clenched. I can't wait to hear what this is. So, so it's, it's, yeah, let's hear it. All right. Well, the framework that I used to teach this is something we're calling uh, in, our, in our lab the Minnesota arc. And uh, if you imagine a rainbow shape or an arc shape, that's the shape that you want to hold in your mind when you're interacting with a patient like this. The first part of the arc is going to be spent doing things and saying words a certain way with the goal of switching the patient from their fight or flight mode 
to their whole brain mode where they're able to think and take in information. Because if we go on the assumption that they're not going to be able to understand our perspectives, our opinions, our algorithms, our evidence-based strategies, they cannot process that information unless they're in the whole brain. So your time must be spent at the beginning of the interaction doing a procedure on them with words to switch from switch them from fight or flight mode to their whole brain mode. And anything other than that is a waste of time because it's going to result potentially in harm to the patient because you're going to have miscommunications and they're going to leave the session feeling unheard. Maybe you even prescribed uh, antihypertensive and they nodded their head and said, okay, doctor, and then they never pick it up. You know, how often does that happen? Well, the literature suggests it happens quite a bit. And if you think this is going to take a lot of time, you're wrong. It takes a minute, two minutes, three minutes, and you don't have time not to use this technique. So please rest assured that this is efficient and there's really no alternative to doing this effectively. So you spend your time uh, leading to that brain switch. After you get the brain switch, you do and say what you're normally going to say anyways. If you're uncomfortable prescribing something, if the answer is no, if you're on a different understanding about what their diagnosis is, you can do all that. You can set those limits. You can say yes. You can come up with a plan. So just because you did this first part doesn't mean you have to acquiesce or negotiate or do anything that you're uncomfortable with. Or That's not what this means. This is... Get the person's whole brain so you can do that stuff you want to do anyways. Okay. How do you get somebody's brain back? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Here's how we do it. What we're going to do is reflect their mannerism with our bodies and the, our voice. So if someone is talking a little louder and more intensely, you're going to talk a little louder and more intensely. That's not what we've been trained to do in medical school. We've been trained to be very quiet, very calm, very clinical. And, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to get unhinged. I'm not <laughs> telling you to lose it and start shouting at a patient. I'm saying very mindfully and in control of yourself, mirror some of the gestures and intensity in their voice and tone. And then, the words you say are going to be actually repeating some of their words. So if they say, I want Xanax, you say Xanax, okay? What is happening there is you are triggering mirroring neurons in the brain that bypass the fight or flight system and actually engage the thoughtful part of the brain. You are actually creating safety in that moment through mirroring and reflecting. Now, uh, some of the basic repeating goes on, and then you can start summarizing sentences. You want Xanax. You used it in the past. It's the only thing that's worked for you. Ten times a day is your preference. Ten times a day, okay? You're not agreeing that that's the best treatment plan. You're not doing any of that. You are repeating and reflecting. That doesn't come and off as patronizing? That you're um, using the same cadence and the same tone? When it, it, it only comes across as, as patronizing if you say, I know you want Xanax. You want 10 times a day. Okay? <laughs> okay. That would be incredibly patronizing. You, you sound like a New Yorker. Just 
Yeah. <laughs> we try not to talk like that in Minnesota, <laughs> imperfectly, but uh, so, so you listen to me do that. You have your whole brain engaged and you're like, well, that's weird. That seems patronizing, right? The limbic system can't tell that that's what you're doing because it's the limbic system. Got it. All it knows is this person is proving that they're hearing me and that my mirroring neurons are being stimulated and that feels really good. I've heard Chris Voss, who's this famous hostage negotiator, talk about this. Like this is what he recommends doing in a negotiation is mirroring, right? They call it mirroring where you, you use their gestures, you use their cadence, you use their tone. So that's what you're saying. Exactly. And the words, and the words specifically use the same words that they're using. I'm at the point where if, if somebody was standing on a bridge, I would I would want to be called first because that's how much faith I have in this technique after using it for so many years. It is so incredibly effective, but it's not intuitive. Yeah. It's not intuitive that you would do that because we are experiencing our own threat. When, when a patient is asking for something that we're uncomfortable with or endorses a diagnosis that we disagree with, that's a threat to us. And we get in our own threat mode. And so what I love about this technique is it you're forced to get in the pattern of, of having an internal mantra, which, which I have now adopted. My internal mantra is what is legitimate? What is legitimate versus our default stance, which is what is not legitimate? So as I'm repeating and summarizing and reflecting in my head, I, I say, what is legitimate? What is legitimate? And so I might say, you've had a crappy time working with doctors. You have not felt that your needs have been met in this process. Some doctors diagnose you with this, and that seems right. Other ones are saying something different. You don't know who to believe. All you know is there's this one medication that makes things better, and you're not willing to accept anything less than that. Yes, doctor. Yes. Thank you. Finally, someone's listening to me. Finally, you get it, okay? When, when you, that's the top of the arc. That's that shift where they move to their whole brain. They might even at that point change body posture or say, I'm sorry, doc. I just kind of lost it there. I'm so sorry. This has just been so upsetting. Yes, yes, it is upsetting, right? But you'll see them change when you've done this effectively. When you get that change, then you can say, and not, but, but say, and here's where I'm at. This this diagnosis that, that, that you've worked with, with your, with your other provider is not one that I understand or, or that consensus of my peers really have validated. And we don't have treatment protocols that, that I feel are, are safe at this point. We can agree to disagree on that. How should we move forward? Do you want to keep seeing me or do you want to work with this other provider? I'm in it with you. I'm listening. I want to you know, help you each step of the way. And I need to let you know, here's where I'm at on this, right? And, and But the point is, some, they can hear that with their whole brain. If you started the conversation when, when their fists were clenched and they were upset with, listen, that's not a diagnosis I do, then you've instigated a fight, essentially. It's, it's not about acquiescing or agreeing with things that are not legitimate. It's about identifying what is legitimate, repeating that almost like a broken record, until you can get that switch and then engaging in the negotiation that you were prepared to engage in, you know, even before you walked in the room. 
Can I use this with my kids? Yes, <laughs> kids. It actually works with other mammals. People have described this dog, you know, the dog's barking at the squirrel and you bark the same tone, the same intensity. And they say, oh, okay, you got it. You know, versus the dog keeps barking because they're like, they don't get there's a threat in the yard. I'm going to have to bark more, right? (laughs) So if you uh, reflect it, mammals find that very soothing. Oh, my, my, what's, what's the word for, um, a group of mammals, like it, my pack, my oh. pack uh, gets that there's a threat. Say, flock, but those aren't mammals. I won't work with with geese. <laughs> flock, yes. Oh no, I guess so, maybe uh, if the, you're a shepherd, you have your yes, family. right. And so human beings, at the end of the day, are mammals. They see you as the physician, as potentially someone in their pack, or perhaps a threat. Yeah, and they're brains, you know, this is out of their awareness, but their brains are essentially doing a, a threat test. Is this person going to help me or hurt me? Yeah. And, and the answer, you know, the truth is people have been hurt by physicians. They have been hurt by the medical system before. And so um, I never blame someone for being suspicious or, you know, I don't, I don't feel entitled to anyone's trust. I realize I have to earn that, that it's a, a sacred role to be somebody's physician. And, and um, it's my job to prove that. And so I, I take that one, two, five minutes to prove to their <laughs> limbic system, their fight or flight system, that I'm in their pack. I see the potential threat with them. I, I understand it. And then once they feel safe in that relationship, then I, you know, use my medical training to uh, come up with a plan with them side by side. Now, does this work in extreme examples? Let's say, a patient has borderline tendencies. So you mm-hmm. hear them talking about the doctors they've seen in the past that are horrible. They're incompetent, mm-hmm. they're villains, and then they, they're they meeting you and suddenly you're this heroic champion. So, you know, you, you recognize that there's this tendency. It, it, I feel like they're gonna, I, I, I'm concerned that you develop this relationship with them, you, you deescalate, you engage, and then they leave the office and suddenly something happens and now you've, you're, you've, they've split and now you're on the other side. Yeah. Now you're suddenly the villain, right? Well, is, this, yeah. is, is this still going to work in that situation? Well, we see that all the time. And that tendency is a limbic brain function. So anyone, regardless of their diagnosis or, or whether um, they have certain symptom patterns or not, has that tendency when they're in threat brain to do that kind of um, simplistic separating people into helpful or unhelpful, good or bad. And we do see that more frequently in people living with borderline personality disorder because the nature of their disorder is that their limbic system is regularly firing during interpersonal interactions. And they have a lot of barriers to finding, um, you know, to, to having that whole brain thinking when it comes to communicating with others. That could be a result of trauma. It could be a result of being born with an overactive limbic system and dealing with people. There's a lot of different ways that comes about. But what you want to do is you don't need to worry that you're enabling someone through validating them. You're helping them find their whole brain thinking. That's a term we use for that front part of the arc. It's called validation. Again, it's not saying, oh, you're a good patient. That's not what I mean. It's saying, uh, this is what you're saying. I see what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Um, through doing that, you're actually, it's a therapeutic mechanism is what I'm trying to say. 
Now, you're still going to set limits. Like, I'm okay with this treatment. I'm not okay with that treatment. I'll, I'll be straight with you. I'm going to be honest with you. Okay. And so uh, if you notice that um, tendency for, for people to say, oh, that, they were a terrible doctor, they were a good doctor, or something like that, you can just know that that's their limbic brain. That's a, that's a kind of a lower order function. And your job is not to argue with the limbic system. It's, it's losing battle, you know, because that's not what the limbic system does very well. It's not rational by definition. And so that's just a clue that someone's in limbic system and you'll do your technique to get them the front of the brain. And then oftentimes they will come back and say, well, there were good things about that doctor too. Or, you know, when they have their whole brain, they can be much more insightful and rational about it. But it's that limbic system that's overly simplistic. So your job is to help get them to switch as regularly as possible. And, you know, if you worry that, well, what if this patient appreciates that and then wants to see me all the time? Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you can also validate that. Like, oh, we've had this really productive working relationship. We've got a plan that you and I both feel good about. And probably monthly is is (laughs) as frequent as we need to make this productive. And I know you want weekly and monthly is probably as much as I can accommodate. And I think we can still good, do good work on this monthly basis, you know? And so people are always terrified to set limits with people because they think they'll become enraged. Well, if you do that work to move them into the thoughtful part of the brain, even if you share something that's disappointing or something that they didn't want, they can hear it and and at the end of the day, you can always agree to disagree, but it's a much more uh, rational exchange. Something that comes to my mind is, you know, I have, I have a subset of patients who come in with sinus problems. And they've thought their whole life that they have sinus problems. Uh, ultimately, it's that they have sinus headaches. Most sinus headaches are a variant of migraine. And so it's sometimes challenging for them to shift something they've identified I am someone with sinus problems. It's like an internalized part of their person. Yes. And turn that around and no, this has never been, you've never actually had a sinus problem. This has been migraines the entire time. And and actually migraines are much more user-friendly in a lot of patients because, you know, you get your prescription. If it works for you, you can self-medicate when it happens rather than having to come in, be assessed to get an antibiotic that maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And so- you know, sometimes that that diagnosis is actually a, a, a boon, not a bane. But sometimes it'll also be an element of a mood disorder, right? Mm-hmm. That as the non-psychiatrist, I recognize that there is the possibility, the distinct possibility that there's a mood disorder that's contributing to this. Also, lately, I've been seeing this a lot with TMJ, right? Yeah. People come in with ear pain because they grind their teeth so much. And ultimately, the underlying problem is anxiety that's driving the TMJ. So as a non-psychiatrist, how do you recommend that I broach that subject that they should either be having, that they should either be discussing the possibility of a mood disorder with their primary care physician or be seen a psychiatrist, right? When they're coming in with a sinus infection or an ear infection in their mind and leaving with a recommendation to see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. How do I navigate that conversation most effectively? That is such a good question. And I have so many colleagues who ask the same thing. You know, dermatologists who see people who are scratching their skin, 
And then they go to the dermatologist for skin treatment and the treatment is, well, stop um, scratching, stop scratching you know? <laughs> or, or um, even, uh, you know, people who say there's bugs in my skin. And of course you look and there's no bugs. And the patient says, no, there's bugs. There's bugs, believe me. And then they bring in the matchbox with lint in it and they say, this is bugs, right? Yes, so, actually we've seen in, in ENT and one of my colleagues is an allergist. Yes, uh, we've, we've seen that type of, you know, they bring in pictures, they bring in samples of things that they're convinced are something that they're, they're not. Yes. Yes. So, so everything you're sharing there is on a continuum of kind of those <clears throat> oh, moments where um, they're coming to you for something and then you feel helpless essentially because you're like thinking this is sort of not in my domain of, of specialty or expertise or something that I can be helpful on. I need other team members involved um, to provide comprehensive care in, or, in order to feel helpful. I can't do this on my own by myself. And again, this is a threat to us as, as physicians, that helpless feeling uh, triggers in us very uncomfortable feelings that we don't like, you know, again, these kinds of things that burn us out, this helplessness, this powerlessness in the course of the day. And that's what makes these interactions so difficult is that we have our own limbic system triggered in, in the setting of them. And so what I would invite you to do in these types of circumstances when they come up in the future is to get that arc picture in your head and you're going to start with what is legitimate, what is legitimate. So in, in the people that come in with a migraine variant in, impacting their sinus region, you've been living with this pain in the middle of your face your whole life. You know, of course, that's where your sinuses live. Of course, you associate this pain with sinuses. This has become a full-time job on top of your other jobs to manage this pain You've gone to doctor after doctor. You've had antibiotic treatment after antibiotic treatment. I don't even know how you are doing this. It, this is consuming you. This is consuming all aspects of your life. It breaks my heart seeing you working to manage this every day and needing to come in every time this pain flares up again. And here I am, again, doing an antibiotic, worrying about the side effects of an antibiotic, this is just feeling so difficult for you. And I see that. I see that. I'm, and then, and then they say, yes, doctor, yes, this has been consuming things. I, I just wish this would go away. I wish I could get more antibiotics and make this go away. Of course, you're thinking about antibiotics. When you've come in, that's been the treatment. It, it tends to work after a few days. Of course you would want antibiotics. It would be weird if you weren't showing up asking for antibiotics after everything you've been through. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, so now you've communicated to the patient that you don't see them as a drug seeker. You don't see them as a whiner. You know, all those things that patients are sensitive to uh, when they've had medically unexplained phenomena, you're going to not fall into any of those traps of, of doing that to somebody, you're actually gonna max, you're gonna maximize the impact rather than minimize it. Say, I don't even know how you're doing this. This is no way to live like this, right? Without, without getting into suicide stuff, right? I never wanna ever uh, imply that that would be a good idea. Uh, you maybe say, this is, you are, uh, this is unbearable. You are, you know, what I see is unbearable. So then they say, yes, doctor, thank you. Finally, you know, you get it. Yes, yes. And you say, this is 
one of the worst cases of this is I've ever seen. Um, I'm, I want to stay on your team. I need to follow you. And I need my colleagues. I need the best brains in the business. We're going to need a multi-member team to get to the bottom of this because this is unbearable. It's not following the usual rules. And I'm uh, concerned that perhaps I'm missing something and, and maybe even repeating a pattern that could cause more harm in the future. And, and because I'm concerned about that, I've got my two buddies. One is a neurologist, one is a psychiatrist, but they are experts in, in this interface between the brain and the, and the front of the face. And we're going to assemble a team on this. And, and I need you to work with them. Well, are you saying this is all in my head? Uh, well, it is in your head. <laughs> it is It is technically in I your use, head. I use that joke. It <laughs> yeah. usually works. Usually it, works. It, it is technically in your head. Your face uh, but, is part of your head. Yes. <laughs> but you're not imagining this. You're not making this up. In fact, this is one of the worst cases of whatever this is I've seen. And it's so serious that we need a team. Period. And half the patients will say, yes, let's take the team. And, and the other half will say, uh, no, I'm not doing a team. Yeah. But, you know, that's like way more people than you would to yeah. see the team than, than you would have normally yes. gotten. Yeah, yeah, way more people. And um, maybe then it's the next visit you do this spiel and you get yeah. another 50% in the next visit. So it's always a journey. Life is a journey and it's two steps forward, one step back. But the bottom line is validate, validate, validate. Observe your limits. Of, of what you believe is safe and, and um, evidence-based medical care and uh, stick with people. And over time, you will see much more satisfying results than you have been seeing. And you will feel much more of a partnership with patients versus walking in the room, feeling like you're going to war. You never, ever have to feel that way. Now, if somebody is standing up and they got their fist up and they're ready to hit you, you know, that's, that's a security moment. I'm not telling you to run into or icy water you know yeah it's well <laughs> <laughs> splash <laughs> well in in general you know maybe in emergency medicine in, in, in is different but in outpatient medicine you know i don't think we find ourselves in in that situation that you know that's a, that's a pretty rare phenomenon and i, I would oh, agree yeah right like, there, there's still those one percent of times where you call yeah, security it does happen but, but yes that's when but it's going to be much less frequent you can yeah. prevent that that mega escalation um, where somebody is really going to fight mode, you can actually prevent that through this technique. I think that's hopefully going to change a lot of our practices. And and the way you said that made me think of something that Gretchen LaSalle, who we've spoken to about vaccines, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like if Mm -hmm. you convince them, if you don't convince them to get the vaccine during this visit, you know, the goal isn't necessarily to do that. It's to just nudge them in the right direction. So then they're getting more information. You're you're just nudging them in that direction. They'll be able to think about it more, think about it a little differently, and then maybe at the next visit or the visit after that. And that visit might not be with you. It might be with someone else. But still, the goal is to nudge them in that direction. It's not a failure if you haven't, you know, gotten them to do a complete 180. But I think I think it's important for that burnout issue, how we measure success. Right? Was it successful? Was it a failure if you didn't get them to completely come over to your way of thinking? No, no. It was a successful visit. If you established a relationship where there's mutual respect and empathy and and they left there with their fists unclenched. Exactly. And I think we've understood that generally, but where we've lacked 
in medical training is, okay, how do you do that? How do you show that empathy? And I've always considered myself an empathic person. I always feel like I'm walking in the room with empathy. But what I didn't know is that the limbic system needs that empathy communicated a different way than you would normally convey to someone who's not upset. And uh, what I love about Marshall and Han's work is she gave us the guidebook on here's what you do and here's how to say it in order to achieve that goal that we can all agree upon. It's the how to do it. We kind of understand the, the why or that you should, but we just really haven't understood how. And I have colleagues in primary care who have used this technique and been amazed at the number of times that in that same visit, somebody will change their mind and agree to uh, a vaccine because the patient felt safe with the doctor. They didn't feel judged. What we have is an epidemic of patients coming into the doctor feeling judged, um, maybe because of judged by weight, judged by vaccine choices, uh, judged by substance use. And that judgment is corrosive to health and change promotion. And so, yes, we have an agenda. We are pro-vaccine. But if you can come into the room non-judgmentally, focus on what is legitimate. You want the best for your child. You care about your child's health. You don't want your child to be a lab rat or experimented on. You know, you are concerned because you've read things on the internet that cause great concern for you. If you can say those things clearly and in a way that's not patronizing, but you really believe it, you really believe that those things are legitimate for this person then that increases their sense of trust and you helps them feel safer. And then when you explain the risks and benefits of a vaccine, they can weigh it using their full brain machinery thoughtfully and make a, a reasoned choice versus a choice based on their mistrust of the doctor. Amazing. Amazing. This is exactly what I want my podcast to be all about is about, you know, there, there are techniques out there. Some of them, uh, developed by people within medicine, sometimes developed outside of medicine, that we can apply to make our relationships with our patients more productive, stronger, more effective, more fulfilling for us. So I, I, I love that. There, there was one more thing that I wanted to get to since this is uh, this is the age of COVID. So we can't have a, a podcast episode go by without talking about COVID. Although hopefully by the time this episode comes out, uh, we'll be at least on, on the point of declining cases. Sometimes you'll have people come to the hospital, they'll be admitted with COVID and they don't believe that they have it, right? They don't believe that they have it. It's all a hoax. There's no way I could have it. It's not real. This is just the flu. And it could be to the point where they're refusing care, right? They're refusing care related to COVID. So this to me seems almost like delusional disorder, right? I don't know if I'm using that incorrectly because uh, I haven't studied it since medical school 20 years ago, 15 years ago, but, but that's how it strikes me, right? Their reality doesn't, doesn't jive with our reality. So how should their care team approach this? What would be the most productive way to go about that? Are you using the same techniques or is this a little different? No, it's, it's exactly the same. And in fact, I would encourage people to consider this phenomena, which I must say would be extremely painful. 
here you are in ICU seeing somebody die in, in the dying process with COVID and they're saying, oh no, this is just uh, made up, made up by liberals, you know, to, to oppress me. And, and this must be something else going on. I, I just uh, can't imagine, you know, what, how painful that must be for people in that situation. So I'm not going to say that this is simple or easy, or I don't want to oversimplify the problem solving here. To, to be in that position, to have your gut wrenched in that way, this is going to be difficult to apply this technique. If you're up to it, try it, practice with it a little bit, knowing that it's going to be very difficult and draining at first to practice and try this. Although the alternative is to not try it and to have it be difficult and draining either way. So it, it really is a rock and a hard place situation for sure. But I would encourage people to think of this almost as a cross-cultural medicine experience. Uh, We are used to working with people where it's more easily identified as a cross-cultural experience. Maybe it's somebody from another country or was raised in an entirely different religion than than you were raised in or something like that. And and we do have patients who say, you know, a a demon is is causing this uh, infection or something like that. And we have skills when it comes to that. We have skills of of involving um, community members in their care or acknowledging, yes, you, you know, I hear you saying that this, that this is a demon and that must be very painful. And so we've talked to your family and your clergy. Our understanding is that it's an infection and we believe an antibiotic would help. Ultimately, it's always a person's choice. But when, when we approach other cultures with this respect, we have found that they're more likely to be open-minded to some of the things that we suggest versus when we approach someone and say, demons, oh, come on, give me a break. You know, that's silly. You know, <laughs> if we if we approach people, we don't do that, hopefully. Uh, if we did that, it wouldn't go well. And so we, we want to think about this as a cross-cultural medical practice, which does take more energy and is more difficult. So do we but get we, Tucker Carlson to like FaceTime into the uh, ICU so he can interact with the patient on our behalf? I think I think we should consider it. I think we should consider radio DJs and other people um, to maybe be part of the solution in uh, helping, in encouraging people to seek care. I, I like what you're on to. And then, you know, we, we do those cross-cultural medical things. But what I would encourage you to say in a one-on-one conversation, because I want you to be equipped. I want you to feel like you have tools in your, your toolbox for that conversation. And this is this is going to be difficult. I mean, really difficult. but. Brad, what would you say is legitimate about someone presenting that way, saying it's a hoax, it's a hoax? You know, you're saying, well, that's not legitimate. But what would you say is legitimate about this presentation? Well, I think the information that they've been getting, right, there's recognize that there's confirmation bias, right? Every one of their family members is saying that this is hoax. The news that they're they're seeing is saying that this is a hoax. Their social media feed that includes strangers they've never met before is all saying the same thing. It's all saying that this isn't real. So all the information that they've been fed up until now, now granted there has been other information, but confirmation bias, right? Like they've been disregarding it because it doesn't jive with everything else that they've been seeing, right? They're getting this deluge of information that's all saying the same thing. So it's legitimate for them to believe this. Right. And so that's exactly how you'd approach it. You'd say, you think this is a hoax, you know, hoax, hoax, hoax. You would use that word, (laughs) hoax, hoax, hoax. You're not saying it's a hoax. You're reflecting their language, hoax, hoax. 
you say this is a hoax. Your family says this is a hoax. Everything you've read says this is a hoax. Of course you believe this is a hoax. How could you not believe it's a hoax? <laughs> in your community, in, in your culture, in your space, um, this is the common understanding. So of course you feel this way. I hear you. Hoax. Yes, doctor. Okay. Because the main thing that they're trying to communicate to you is that they think this is a hoax. So you <laughs> prove to them that you have heard them that they think it's a hoax. And you have to do that very actively. So, so that's where then you switch to and. And we um, found, found the virus in your body. And we've seen this. We find the virus in people's body. And they come in with your symptoms that they start to die very rapidly from COVID. Food for thought. <laughs> please, please, uh, please. We 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 can say it's a hoax. You know, not not saying it's a hoax or not. I'm just telling you my my experience. You know, you can even use a felt, found, feel statement. You can say, well, at one point when this first cropped up, I wondered if what the impact would be, or if this was even real too. I had that thought for a moment. Then I found that the people in my ICU were dying when they have this <laughs> virus in them. Now I feel like it's an emergency and we need to treat you, <laughs> right? And so that's another powerful way, the felt, found, feel statement to sort of meet someone where they're at and then help help their mind, uh, help introduce to their mind new information for them to consider. The problem is we've been trying to do that to a closed mind, you know, and, and, that, and the closed mind is limbic system. It's no one's fault. We all have limbic systems. It's nothing against them. It's their reality. It's what their brain's doing to help them. But we need to learn skills to bypass that and get to their whole brain so that we can have these negotiations. Powerful, powerful stuff. I, I, I'm going to be going to see patients this afternoon. Uh, and I am going, I'm sure, hopefully I won't have to try it, but uh, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to, to be able to try this, this rainbow framework. So if people want to learn more about you, if they want to hear your podcast, The Mind Deconstructed, uh, where can they find you online and where can they find your podcast? I love connecting with people on, online. I'm on Twitter at Kaz J. Nelson, also at Mind Deconstruct. That's my podcast page for Twitter. And then um, my podcast is available on all podcast apps and distributors. But our website is themindeconstructed.org. Check it out. Fantastic. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And this uh, our listeners are definitely going to be able to apply this to their patients immediately. Great stuff. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This podcast is brought to you by Contract Diagnostics. This is a company that specializes in contract reviews. And specialization is something that we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family have contract needs, give them a call. They'll help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interests and protects the assets you covet most, your time and your family. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or by phone at 888-574-5526. That's 888-574-5526. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.